There were racial disparities in school discipline. There were racial disparities in faculty hiring. There was throughout the country a move to uh, free up these school systems from desegregation orders. Just decided not to follow it. In 1972, a federal court ordered the desegregation of the school district in Prince George's County, Maryland. But 10 years later, the district was not complying and had violated the desegregation order by altering school attendance zones without prior approval. That's when Hogan Lovells stepped in. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, Hogan Lovells has championed the battle against discrimination. We're going to discuss that desegregation case in a moment, but first I want to talk about another Maryland case in which we were involved. This one is out of Charles County, where in 1941, the federal government created Woodland Village. It was a segregated community for black employees at the Indian Head Naval Ordnance Station. Forty years later, when residents came to the firm for pro bono help, it was still a nearly all-black community of about 500 citizens. Joe Hassett and Jack Keeney are here to tell us a little more. Joe, let me start with you. What was happening with Woodland Village and its residents at that time? Sure. Well, thank you, Kate. Well, it, to me, uh, Woodland Village is, in a way, a paradigm of our long national struggle with our uh, slaveholding past. Um, throughout our history, I think that we have time and again taken some affirmative steps toward remedying the wrongs of the past, but we've never gone the whole distance. And so Woodland Village is fascinating, and it was at the time to me and to Jack and to the others who worked on it, um, because uh, it started in a way with a very generous and far-sighted impulse by the great Eleanor Roosevelt. She saw that the 500 units of new housing that were being constructed for workers at the Naval Ordnance Station down in Southern Charles County uh, didn't have any place in that segregated society for black workers. This was during World War II. We were fighting with a segregated military. And the upshot was that of the 500 houses, uh, 100 were removed and put kind of across the other side of the railroad tracks uh, and were the housing for black workers. Um, in 1980s, uh, when Jack and I got involved, the situation had not improved tremendously in, in terms of the segregation. The Woodland Village was all black, the neighboring town, Indian Head was all white. Uh, Woodland Village had uh, uh, inadequate uh, sewage, inadequate water, uh, no fire protection, no playgrounds no adequate uh, access and egress. Uh, they had the risk of being locked in by a train if there were a fire with no water and no way to escape. So it was a, a situation that reminded me in a way of a fascinating comment that President Obama made in his eulogy for John Lewis that each new generation uh, kind of takes its purpose from uh, taking up the mantle or the mandate or the impetus to finish uh, the work that was undone by its predecessor. So here we are in the 1980s and the wonderful, hardworking, 
wonderful, just great people from Woodland Village came to us. Uh, and it was a perfect marriage between them and between the idea of our community services department because they needed the kind of legal representation that a big company or a wealthy individual would seek if, if they or it was in a similar situation. So fortunately, we were there and we wanted to do something like this. And uh, uh, Jack will tell you what we did. So let me ask Joe before we turn to to you, Jack. Um, you mentioned that the the uh, Woodland Village had inadequate sewage, inadequate water. I take it that's because no efforts had been made even into the '80s to connect Woodland Village with any kind of sewage or water system that any other part of the county was running. Is is that the fundamental issue? Yes, slightly varied in that there was a water system, but it was not adequate, mm -hmm. and the sewage was not adequate. And they had tried to be next to the neighboring town, and they had tried to get relief from the county, but they had not been successful. And that's where we came in, and uh, because Jack did so much of it, and he may be hesitant to pat himself on the back so much, it was extraordinary what Jack did. His understanding of how uh, the civil rights remedies under EPA and other grants and how the Maryland FOIA and how the law affecting Charles County within Maryland all came to play in a very sophisticated way. Jack? So, so Jack, yeah, Jack, <laughs> when, uh, when Hogan, then Hogan and Hartson, became involved in this case, how did the, the residents of Woodland Village find their way to you? Joe described it as a sort of a marriage of what they needed with the ideals of the community services department. How did they find you? Uh, it was by referral from the uh, Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, as well as one of the national housing groups. And we were delighted to meet them. Uh, it's not often you get a client coming in who is so involved as a community, but has such an insolvable legal problem. And that was the first issue for Joe and me. What do you do about this mess? And the insight that we ultimately had is we had to break it into pieces and deal with each piece separately with separate defendants, and ultimately that worked. Um, let me just prioritize the problems and what the solution had to be. The first problem was with the county and the water. The water was, as Joe said, very inadequate. There wasn't enough for fire protection. So if there was a fire, everyone was a dead duck, couldn't be put out, they didn't have enough water. The county, by state law, was under a state statute that required the county to take over every substandard water system. That was Maryland state law. They did it for all of the 100% white communities. They refused to do it for Woodland Village. When we got involved, HUD had already been involved and had got proposed and gotten a conciliation agreement with the county in which the county pledged that it would submit an application for federal grants to expand and modernize the water system in Woodland Village. The conciliation agreement was very carefully worded and the county took the position, 
All they had to do was submit the application. They didn't have to submit the supporting documents. So at the same time they submitted applications and supporting documents for every all-white community, they submitted only the application for Woodland Village, which of course had to be denied because HUD didn't have the information it needed to act. And HUD referred it to the National Office of HUD for enforcement. So when Woodland Village came to us, they needed a big law firm that could essentially push. And what we did is we pushed through Title VI. Title VI provides, and Title VIII, both provide federal funding for counties and localities to build things like water. And indeed, there was major federal granting going on where the feds were paying for water systems in Charles County, just only for white neighborhoods and not for black ones. And Charles County wasn't worried because they knew HUD would do nothing to support the residents of Woodland Village. In fact, they did nothing. But when we got involved for the first time, the county realized that we were in this for keeps. And we as a law firm knew how to go to court under Title VI and Title VIII. And we were going to go into court with a request for relief, which was not just that the county obey state law and obey the conciliation agreement and fund the water system in Woodland Village. We were going in with the request that until they do so, there be a preliminary injunction and all federal funds for housing be cut off to Charles County. That was something that only a firm with our resources and our magnitude could pull off. And the threat was real. The county immediately understood that uh, we were not to be pushed around and we couldn't be pushed around. And what they were doing is they were putting at risk essentially almost tens of millions of dollars that were, they were counting on to help their white communities and their white constituents. And if we cut them off, there were gonna be huge political repercussions. So ultimately they caved. But that was just problem one that we were dealing with. Problem two was the sewage. Different defendant, different federal contract, different federal agency, but same strategy. We discovered that the town of Indian Head had received an EPA grant to modify its sewage system. Now, the town of Indian Head had a 20-year contract with the citizens of Woodland Village to maintain and upgrade the sewage system in Woodland Village. They just hadn't done it for 20 years, and it was a total mess. What we did, again, under Title VI and Title VIII, is we went to EPA and explained the situation that there was actually a contractual obligation by the town, but the town was refusing to use the federal funds to actually extend these governmental services to the black citizens and was only extending it to the white citizens and that this violated federal civil rights laws and we wanted the whole kit and caboodle of the federal funds to be cut off to the town of Indian Head. Could I just interrupt a second to ask how you found out those contracts? Did you just uh, open up the internet and look them up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish we could have. This is actually a really great human interest story. 
Back then, there was no internet. This is the early 80s. Back then, Freedom of Information Act requests were very, very hard. What we did is we got in our cars and we drove up and down Charles County looking at billboards, which talked about upcoming construction. We got out of the car, we wrote down the contract number and the federal agency, and then we put in the FOIA requests at the agencies. And that turned out to be, you know, a, the only really way you could do it back then. And ultimately, it brought us to the attention of the EPA, which had not focused on this at all. As I had mentioned before, HUD already had conciliation agreements that had been broken. Uh, there was nothing happening at EPA. There had been no complaint. We went up to EPA regional headquarters, which was in Frederick, Maryland. We inspected their files. We made an in-person presentation. We made a written presentation. And lo and behold, EPA indicated to the town of Indian Head that it was about to cut off all of the funds to Indian Head for its sewer. That suddenly gave us the exact leverage that we needed in order to compel a settlement, first with Indian Head, through EPA, through a conciliation agreement, so that the pre-existing grant that EPA was all set to give Indian Head now included the Black Citizens of Woodland Village. And of course, with HUD, we had the similar agreement where the water was contracted already, but the grant wasn't going to be made unless they expanded it to include Woodland Village. Those were the first two problems. The third problem, just in my prioritization, was the annexation issue. This is a really weird old-time racism situation. You had a black community of about 500 residents, 83 houses, surrounded on 75% of its um, geography by an all-white town. This was like the black hole in the white donut. And lo and behold, what Indian Head was moving to do was to annex the other quarter of the white town so there would be 100% surrounding of the black community and refusing to annex the black community. Uh, through really good work by a lot of people on the team, we had some uh, FOIA requests out. We actually got some minutes and recordings of the town meeting at Indian Head discussing the annexation where they explained they had a real problem if they didn't annex the black citizens of Woodland Village. So let's call it economic reasons. So they stated on the record what the pretextual concept <laughs> was going to be. The evidence was so overwhelming that you know, we were prepared to go into court uh, on the grounds that this was just a flat out violation of uh, federal civil rights laws, you cannot just annex white areas and ignore the black area. Um, our case was so strong that we were joined by the Ronald Reagan Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, which also filed a companion lawsuit. Needless to say, Woodland Village ultimately got annexed. It's now part of Indian Head. They get to vote in Indian Head elections. Um, it doesn't solve all the racism problems, but certainly is moving in the right direction. And just as an added benefit, after all of this uh, threatening to cut off all their federal funds to Indian Head and all the federal funds to the county, the county did something really nice 
that we didn't ask for in terms of equal services for black residents of the county. They let us know that the cable company, which was going to wire Charles County, was going to start with the black citizens of Woodland Village so they would have cable before anyone else in the entire county. And the county actually kept that promise and the citizens of Woodland Village were actually thrilled. They were great people, the Woodland Village, uh, our client. Uh, they all through the representation, they had a bunch of uh, baked goods sales and uh, other events in the communities. They wanted to pay our expenses, which they did. And uh, Jack, how did they celebrate uh, the terrific victory you brought them? We had the best client celebration ever. They threw a crab feast for us down at Woodland Village, attended by everyone in the community. And it was really overwhelming, the expressions of gratitude. And we had the great fortune at the time of uh, working with us as a summer associate was Michael Kennedy, Robert's son. Michael unfortunately died in the skiing accident a lot later on. But uh, when we showed up with Michael Kennedy, the citizens of Woodland Village were just thrilled. They were taking pictures with Michael. They took Michael to pretty much every house there to show him that each house had a picture either of his father or of his uncle or of both. Um, <laughs> it was just a really nice symbolic moment. Plus it was a lot of fun too. They were great people. That's wonderful. One of the things that struck me as you were talking, Jack, is you know there, there's sort of a, a shadow side and a light side to to what I was thinking about. Part of it is just the the perniciousness of discrimination that you see it with respect to water issues, sewage issues, voting issues, uh, land use, you know, across all of this spectrum of different federal agency treatments. But the the other side of that is that you, know, you and Joe and the team at Hogan were able to put together this extraordinarily creative and comprehensive and aggressive way of, of breaking down each of these problems into their constituent responsibilities and going after each problem. And I think that's a it's a very strong example of the power that a well-resourced law firm can bring to a very complicated, multi-strand kind of civil rights issue. Thank you, Kate. Um, I am very proud of the work we did, the work Hogan as a firm did in letting Joe, myself, and teams of associates work on this. I think it made a major difference in the lives of real citizens, and it couldn't have been done without the Hogan people. Of course, that's not the only time that we were involved in a, in a Maryland discrimination case. And I want to turn to another case in which uh, you both, Jack and Joe, were involved. And this was uh, a case involving school desegregation. Um, so, Joe, can you set up the background for us? What was going on in the 1970s, 1980s in Prince George's County, Maryland? Yes, thank you, Kate. And it, it, it's again, it's a part of that same paradigm where something good had been done in society with the Brown v. Board decision in 1954 and the order to desegregate with that interesting language uh, with all deliberate speed. <laughs> there was more deliberation than speed. 
And again, it's that same paradigm where another generation has to come along and take up that mandate to form a more perfect union and to finish the work that was undone by its predecessor. So in Prince George's County, there had been a desegregation suit filed in 1972 to desegregate the system that had been uh, segregated by state law back under the pre-Brown constitutional law. Uh, there was a relief granted in 1972, but it was not effectively implemented. And in fact, the school board had uh, changed uh, the busing plan <clears throat> without permission of the court or without uh, consultation even with our client. <clears throat> and there was in general throughout the country, I think, a, a movement to try to, uh, I think the lingo is continues to be get beyond or put behind <laughs> us the problem of the hangover from the segregated school systems uh, by ignoring the problem. And <clears throat> there was throughout the country a move to uh, free up these school systems from desegregation orders. And it was of great concern to the national NAACP. And they came to the firm uh, asking us to fight it in Prince George's. And so uh, we knew that the job had not been finished and uh, we wound up uh, initially considering a separate litigation and then had the bright idea of reopening the old case. And uh, again, I mean, the pre, I don't know if we, well, yeah, we didn't have laptops to take into court. So we had to go up to Baltimore. The case was tried in the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse, as it's now known, in Baltimore. And we had to bring our boxes of uh, papers and uh, deposition transcripts and uh, our scissors and our paste and our paper to paste the other paper onto. And uh, we uh, had all our material and uh, then we headed over to the courthouse and uh, we started out the day, as I recall, with Jack having the, uh, his breakfast at Champions, which I learned of that morning. Uh, it was uh, Chips Ahoy and uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> and uh, with that, it wasn't quite the Kate Stetson preparation for a Supreme Court argument with a chocolate shake and a burger, but this was the, uh, uh, economy version. <laughs> and uh, with that burst of energy, it, Jack, take us maybe into the courthouse. So there is Judge Kaufman, a fantastic judge for our case. He had been the judge in the uh, 72 case. He understood, he had a really capacious emotional and intellectual range. He understood what segregation in education meant in the community. Uh, he was a terrific judge for us. And uh, so in we marched. Jack, maybe you'll t take it from there. Let me start by uh, thanking the firm for letting me as a young associate spend two months in a federal trial uh, on behalf of the NAACP. Uh, we were there two months and we were so focused on the trial. Sometimes we'd stay over there in a hotel. Sometimes we'd come back. But everyone in the firm was reading about the trial every day in the Washington Post because the Prince George's County school system had its PR people at work. So every day, either on the front page of the Post or on the front page of the Metro, every partner and associate at then Hogan and Hartson was reading how badly Joe Hassett and I were losing <laughs> this case. And everyone was feeling so sorry for us when they'd run into us on the weekend because they actually believed this stuff that the other side was saying. Needless to say, one year after we had our two-month trial, we won it, the whole thing. 
And people were just astonished. And Judge Kaufman wrote a very glowing opinion about the work done by Hogan and Hartson. And not only myself, Joe, David Tatel, Elliot Mintzberg, uh, we had re George Murnick, we had George really Murnick, good yeah. people working on this. It was hard. Um, we won first on the main issue, which was they had to return to court when they messed with a school desegregation order of the court and just decided not to follow it and not to tell the court that they weren't following it. The judge found that to be beyond the pale. We won on that one. The judge also concluded that they had to have additional relief in terms of the students. We did not prevail on things that we should have prevailed on. There were racial disparities in assignments of students to special education. There were racial disparities in school discipline. There were racial disparities in faculty hiring. The judge just really didn't want to go there. Um, but by keeping the feet to the fire of not only the school system, but the Board of Education, which supervised the system, he essentially created the opportunity for the black community to essentially assert its political power over the school system too. Ultimately, you had school superintendents who were black, you had school, uh, or you had county supervisors who were black, you had a county council that was majority black. So ultimately, the steps that we took were at a time when the community didn't quite have the power and it needed a powerful law firm to go to court to get the relief. Oh, I should just add one footnote. Joe, I don't know if I ever told you this. Um, many years later, after the win, in 1991, I'm at the American Bar Association annual meeting when the American Bar Association gives Hogan and Hartson and its community services department the honor of being named the best law firm pro bono department in the country. And lo and behold, who comes up after the ceremony to congratulate me, but our presiding judge, Judge Kaufman, who says, I am really sure that the good work you and your firm did in my courtroom helped you get this award. And I thanked him profusely. It was very nice of the judge even to come to the ceremony, much less to come up and uh, congratulate us afterwards. Uh, it was a major victory. And this was very, very unusual at the time for uh, young Hogan and Hartson Associates to be in a two-month trial. And Joe Hassett gave us an awful lot of uh, responsibility. We had a lot of witnesses that were done by the associates. And that was a tribute to Joe, his willingness and ability to delegate. And uh, I think it turns into a real team effort. And ultimately, I think Prince George's County today is the better for that effort. Jack, thank you for that. And I, I should add this footnote, uh, George Burnick, who uh, was then a baby associate and became actually he's a fantastic trial lawyer, one of the best I've ever seen. He took his first deposition. It was of the school board chairman. And George had his usual George way of he never has any notes. And he just looks into the witnesses eyes and he somehow gets into their soul. And he gets them to say things they never <laughs> thought they would say. And when she finished, she said to George, who was then a young fellow, she said, well, I hope your mother is real proud of you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I was, and we all were. And Jack, we should add a footnote too that the Fourth Circuit agreed with us on the talented and gifted. Uh, I'll never forget when it said the school board had appealed, and we cross appealed. I was going to ask about that, so I'm yeah. glad you brought we, that up. The appeal. Yeah. Well, we cross appealed, and I was. Uh, we had a great panel up on the Fourth Circuit too. Judge Winter wrote the opinion, but Judge Frank Bernahad was on that panel, and he surely knew what he was talking about in terms of school desegregation. And I was, of course, worried about protecting our judgment because you never know. And so I was arguing away in favor of our judgment when the Judge Bernahan interrupted me and he said, well, Mr. Hassett, you've got some important issues about the talented and gifted. I'd like to hear about that. And I mm. thought, phew. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did pleasure, get further relief. <laughs> yeah. And it only bought us more uh, work because, and it goes back to the point Jack and I and you, Kate, we've all made because we, we appreciate what our partners have supported us in doing all these years is that uh, uh, the firm spent uh, 22 years litigating the Prince George's case. Uh, Pat Brannon took the uh, George Murnick summoned Pat Brannon a lot of the laboring or uh, after the Court of Appeals. And uh, there was constant uh, uh, further evidentiary hearings and further argument and further appeals um, um, going forward over the total length of 22 years to uh, get that system into a, a true integrated system. And uh, it was a tremendous effort. And it goes back to the point of uh, Prince George's needed a law firm that was willing to commit all those resources and those very talented lawyers. And Jack's right to say that uh, those talented lawyers got an opportunity to uh, be in court uh, and to do uh, interesting, rewarding work and to get great courtroom experience and uh, achieve a great result. It was terrific. Terrific experience. They're my happiest days, actually, is uh, is the work we all did together. And we, we continued, Jack and George and I and Pat, to a large extent, uh, kept, we, we didn't know to stop. We just kept working together on a lot, on a lot of other matters uh, for a long time. Yeah, that's been one of one of the really wonderful unifying themes of a lot of these podcasts. There have been several but one of them is the opportunities that these uh, major pro bono cases present for an associate to step into the light a little bit. Uh, it's oh, really. Could I just sure. pick up on that for a second? Uh, a young associate named Pat Brannon uh, did so much of the work in the fascinating case, which I, I hope would be covered separately with Pat. But the uh, because it's a, a problem is still it's the same disease is still affecting our country that some white nationalists, uh, uh, terrible people or just misguided people actually uh, defaced the Sheratavila synagogue. Mm -hmm. uh, and we brought a suit under federal civil rights laws for racial discrimination, which was a very presented a very interesting uh, question. I'm happy to say that that young associate, Pat Brandon, is still an associate. She argued and won that case in the Supreme Court after she had seen it through the District Court and the Court of Appeals. And uh, it was a terrific case and a terrific victory. It was a great experience for Pat, but it yeah. was uh, it, it, it extended the rights, the, uh, the remedies under federal civil rights law to uh, anti-Semitic defacement of a synagogue on the interesting theory. It was a great achievement for the Scalia theory of original intent <laughs> because <laughs> uh, uh, the court uh, accepted the argument that uh, 
race at the time of the 13th, 14th Amendment uh, implementing legislation in the country uh, understood race to be ethnicity. Um, and so although our client did not want to be identified as a separate race, uh, the historically, uh, the law had that intent or mm -hmm. scope, mm -hmm. and it was applied to a very uh, uh, good purpose. One of the interesting things, and it's a sign of Pat in the way, and her wonderful breath of humanity, is that part of the remedy ultimately was the uh, perpetrators uh, meeting with the members of the synagogue and hearing from the synagogue the pain that they felt at this desecration of their place of worship. And uh, I think it was a very interesting kind of learning experience that our society needs uh, today still. They need more lawyers like Pat Brown and Jack Keeney. Yeah. I think about the I think about the Shari Tefila case a lot from the perspective of of what we were talking about, Joe, which is the opportunity for an associate to to step in and argue that because I won't I won't be able to tell Pat's story with sufficient justice, but if I remember in that case, Pat handled it, as you said, in the district court and the court of appeals, and then certiorari was granted. And there was a day, as Pat tells it, where Barrett Prettyman, uh, then the, the dean of, of probably the national appellate bar and certainly the dean of our appellate practice, walked into her office and Pat looked at him and thought to herself, oh boy, here, here we go. You know, now he's going to say, I'll take it from here. And Barrett looked at Pat, still an associate, and said, let me know how I can help. <laughs> and that, that to me has been so emblematic of, you know, not just that moment, but, but the, the way that the firm throughout the years and decades has supported, you know, associates and having these significant roles in pro bono cases. Well, you're right about that, Pat. And your mentor, David Taylor, was then the head of the, C well, he was, he was, had been the head of the C he was still at the firm. And I went to David and I said, well, I think that Pat has really earned the right to argue this. And uh, he said, yep. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Good. <laughs> well, I, I don't have any further questions for you, Jack or Joe. Do you have anything you want to add? Any, we, I think we've talked a little bit about the, some of the, concepts that underlie both the Prince George's case and the Woodland Village case, that sense of needing to come in and remedy uh, a wrong that had been left uh, fallow for a while. But any other closing thoughts either of you would like to add? I don't. Maybe Jack does. It. Just to, to reiterate, uh, it's that concept, again, going back to President Obama's eulogy, that uh, as a society, we have an unfinished mandate to form a more perfect union. And uh, I think Jack and I are, are proud and grateful for the opportunity we had to do something uh, in our time in the CSD. And uh, so we're happy to see it going forward. And, and we're happy to see, I think, I don't know, I tend to be an optimist, but uh, maybe I'll leave it with a question. Is our society today uh, gonna have a new breath of energy toward, uh, I guess I'll quote Lincoln this time instead of President Obama to uh, bind up the nation's wounds and to finish the work that we're in. And so let's all hope, we all hope for that. Thank you, Kate. Kate, I'd like to give a big shout out to the firm. Um, 
I don't think the firm appreciates how special the firm was in creating and maintaining 50 years of a community services department. That was an amazing vehicle and it still is. When the firm received the 1991 ABA award for running the best pro bono program in the whole country, couple things. Number one, it was the first time a DC firm got that award. Secondly, it reflected an amazing amount of work by the entire firm. It wasn't just one case. It wasn't just one lawyer. We literally had hundreds of our lawyers, each working on a case that was really important to him or her. And that made a difference. Um, the strategy I had is I noticed suddenly our firm was doing much greater work than any firm I knew of. So I said, okay, I think I should nominate them, but I can't self-nominate. I'm going to go to the head of the DC Bar Pro Bono Committee and ask him to come in and look at this. And I want him to tell me uh, that we're either the best or we're not. And if we're not, tell me why we're not. And if we're the best, I'd appreciate him nominating me. Well, not only does he come in and nominate the firm, but he also gets, and add more oomph, the president-elect of the D.C. Bar from Wilmer Cutler also to sign it. And we have supporting documents from a whole range of clients, both national and local. And it reflected on the whole firm. Nobody did it like Hogan did it. Nobody did it better. And just because I was there, I could recognize that I thought nobody was doing it better. And the ABA agreed with that. So, um, you know, just keep it up. It's a great program and it's being passed on to new generations now, but it's a great program and keep it up. I completely agree. Thank you so much, Jack. It's a wonderful closing. As you have heard throughout this series, poverty and inequality have been a focal point of our pro bono practice. This endeavor takes on many forms. Next time on the podcast, we take a look at two more cases where we took action in this arena. One sought to ensure affordable housing in a wealthy New York City suburb. Another aimed at guaranteeing that homeless families in Washington, D.C. received the shelter they were promised. We hope you'll join us.